The subject for the evening talk is arising and passing. Having to deal with it. Do we ever learn? Has the circumstances of our own personal history significantly contributed to a genuine learning about the relationship of self to the world that it lives in? And I think sometimes in that rising and falling, that coming and going of the circumstances uh, in, in life, is that the next time that it appears and one finds oneself uh, recycling uh, the history, uh, so to speak, that in that, that it takes a certain kind of grip on oneself. And it's not just a grip of thought, of course, but it's a grip in the bodily sensations and in the bodily life. It can be a grip in the emotions and feelings which are taking place. And though it seems that it does subside, and that drama and that crisis that occurred in one's life seems to fade away at times from consciousness, oh, that took place in the past, that took place last week, last month, last year. But life doesn't seem to be so clean-cut for a human being. And what seems to arise is that the, there's, a comp there's an impact of the old. And the impact, unknowingly, can be carried like fuel into the, the new problem, the new pressure, the new crisis, as a catalyst and as a, an added ingredient. And then the next problem arises and it seems perhaps as big or bigger than before unless one has genuinely learned something about life and self in this world. And there are many such circumstances which we might find ourselves in in life that when undergoing and experiencing uh, this kind of uh, pressure, we often have the idea, particularly if there's a vested self-interest in the pressure. That means that one is doing something in one's life, whatever it might be, and one feels that through continuing doing it, there's a sense that at the end of doing it, when I've finished that whatever the activity is, afterwards it will get easier. There'll be some peace and some uh, contentment. There's no, in fact, it's not any peace or contentment. It's simply a very temporary uh, relief from the pressure, that the circumstances have uh, exhausted themselves outwardly and inwardly, and there is some temporary um, fortune, one might say, of some relief from the situation. And one said, is there an end to this? And how is it that so very, very quickly in the, in the passages and the movements of time, we do become so incredibly um, forgetful. We forget. We forget what, was, what it was like. We forget the impact that it had upon us. We forget all the motivations that conspired from outside and inside of ourselves to hold it together. One of the common outcomes of this kind of uh, w way of living, which is uh, utterly um, futile, incidentally, an utterly unnecessary way of living and, um, and a complete uh, waste of one's existence living like this. <laughs> that in this pressure of circumstances which uh, impact upon oneself and the 
conspiracy as a, uh, of uh, the self with the other, whatever it might be. That is not at all unusual, and in such kind of circles one uh, hears this with uh, uh, much frequency, is that, there's that it generates an incredible doubt inside the mind. And this doubt says, well, why am I doing this? Why am I doing it to myself? Why am I continuing in this way? Why am I going on like this? Why am I pushing myself so hard? What do I really think I'm going to get out of doing all of this? And then one wants, in one's naivety of these things, in the, in the uh, superficiality, really, of one's own mind, that one wants it both ways. One wants to be able to continue the nightmare, the pressure <laughs> that one um, has subscribed to and, and others have a vested interest in keeping one uh, subscribed to it. And have no doubt. Be very comfortable about it. Be very relaxed. Be very, very clear. And rather than acknowledge that there are circumstances and situations in one's life which are, as a fact, an intolerable burden to human existence, which place incredible undue pressure, and the natural organic response to this as a verification of it is the doubt. And yet one wants, I don't want to feel this doubt, I don't want to feel this confusion, I don't want to feel these experiences that I'm, that I'm having, but I don't want to change my circumstances. I don't want to say no, I don't want to let go, I don't want to walk out on, I don't want to, to move out of that which imprisons me. And so we're now looking in, in an honest way and as direct a way into the rising and the passing of uh, circumstances of life and that, and that the tyranny that can arise in doubt. I think rather than sometimes saying to ourselves, I don't like this doubt, I don't want to be suffocated in my experience of uh, self-doubt, to perhaps acknowledge that the self-doubt is the genuine and authentic response to that which one is under pressure. Sometimes in our world of arising and passing, and it's the agreed world, incidentally, it's, there's no ultimate truth in it, there's nothing um, profoundly significant in the world of arising and passing, it's the, the circumstances of existence which human beings perceive and agree to. But in this world of arising and passing uh, which uh, takes, takes place, one of the facts that when something has uh, passed, and, and perhaps yourselves and your various experiences can recall this, and you may be able to record it in the last 24 hours, in fact, that in the, right, that in the passing away of uh, something, in that m period, in those moments of um, passing away, sometimes that which we leave behind, or leaves us behind, it uh, can go both ways, of course, leaves, as I said before, some kind of residue of uh, impression. We may not actually know what that uh, impression is. As for example, with uh, those of you who um, arrived here yesterday evening, you all came from um, uh, different places, as, uh, as I and did as well. And there may, ha may have been, for some people, um, uh, in the de actual departure, in the leaving from, you, you left behind your lover, you left behind your friend or your children or your, or your cat, whatever's the most important thing in your life. 
<laughs> and in that leaving behind uh, of, of that, and there may have been some resentment, some uh, uh, re resistance to leaving that behind. And one has then got onto the, uh, the, 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 the freeway and zoomed down the fast lane uh, to, uh, to here in the most unmindful manner. And <laughs> upon, upon, arri upon arriving here and placing oneself uh, uh, in this situation, one hasn't realized from the time of the departure, that, that the passing away of what you were connected with, to arriving here, something was in fact being carried with one. And of course, in being carried, upon the point of, uh, of arrival, and therefore the arising of a new situation, which is in the language of, re of retreat, in comes this movement of the resentment to having to leave, to having to be away from. And in that arising here, that resentment uh, zooms into the arising, into the arising of the retreat, generally is showing itself in all sorts of perceived judgments and negativities about all sorts of uh, people and situations and food and, and climate and uh, the way people uh, uh, use their shores, you know, are they part of some kind of in click here or what, 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 what uh, whatever the view which um, arises here. And all that can, can occur and one hasn't realized that the passing maybe of that or of other situations in life has actually contributed and demonstrably affected the arising. What happens between the passing and the arising and how easily that influences the perceptions of things. What does it mean to be a free human being and not to carry in life from one to the other? Sometimes in our relationship to the perceptions of things, what's arising uh, in the, uh, the perceptions, in the very moment of, the, of its uh, arising which takes place, we tend, as I say, either to do one or two things in certain circumstances. We either focus on the generality, and then if it's negativity or resentment, it kind of uh, uh, pours out of us, and, and just God help the person who is sitting next to you, who is sniffling, when you, when, <laughs> when you feel your resentment and negativities coming, because they usually just pour over the person uh, next to you. This is probably where the, the word victim and originated. And, <laughs> in, and in this movement of this ice, the picking out, sometimes it's in the generality which takes place, and sometimes it's directly towards a particular uh, person or, or situation. And in that relationship to that, the perception with the feeling that's permeating it at that time actually believes what it sees. It actually believes it. It's not just actually having a perception, in this case resentment, irritation, agitation or whatever, but the perception and the, and the feeling and the belief are impacted together and one thinks that one is actually having a genuinely real view of the world <laughs> around, that this really is the way things are, rather than, one, rather than one seeing that one's own mind is completely deluded. <laughs> so again, in that delusion, which means the belief in the perception and the feeling which makes gross generalizations or specific ones, 
that what that even that what can we explore in our way of looking and relating to this world that even if the negative comes in, even if the resentment comes in, the heavy judgments, the discrimination that comes in towards particular people, which is as ugly as any other form of uh, discrimination in life, that in the moment of its occurrence, one actually sees and recognizes, in the moment, I say again, in the moment of its arising, this is just a belief, nothing to, to take notice of. No truth in it, no reality in it, no substance in it, no uh, authority in it. It's just a movement with uh, uh, belief impacting on it. It's as empty as empty, as the teachings say again and again. Sometimes we see things in our response, and I um, noticed this in uh, myself, there's a perception and then there's a feeling which arises in that perception of something uh, arising, and one gets a reminder of, of this in, in different times. And one of the things which I have um, noticed on my uh, visits to uh, um, California, essentially California is this room, because I never go anywhere else. <laughs> Look, <laughs> you laugh, it's true. I'm not <laughs> you can imagine when my friends ask me, say, what's California like? And, <laughs> and, and one of the things which I noticed, which began um, two or three, uh, um, 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 if I might, might, might have been um, longer, you know, one's memory of, the, of years um, um, tends to get a bit foggier with the time. But um, so at least in, in um, recent years, and certainly in my lifetime, that in coming here to uh, the centre, one of the things which began, I think probably perhaps late 80s or whatever, that people in making their um, slow marching pilgrimage into this uh, room several times a day began bringing with them these bottles of water. And, <laughs> and I was began to be a little, little concerned. People before the sitting start would, you know, have a guzzle and <laughs> there. And then midway mid through, the, the, through the sitting, the, the someone else, and I see some over here, they're having a sip during the talk, and, <laughs> you know, and then come, come the end of the talk, and may, o may all beings live with clarity, there'll be more guzzling will be going on. <laughs> and, and I think, firstly, you ought to know it's a peculiar um, phenomena um, in California. Uh, <laughs> So a few times I've had the thought that you know, perhaps my <laughs> perception is a bit cockeyed here and, and that we're in fact um, living in a desert in this room. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there might be some kind of real danger <laughs> that, that within the space of 45 minutes we'll all, <laughs> we'll all die from dehydration. <laughs> And, and you realize, of course, that anything for me that, that goes on in California, I tell the whole world about. So <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of starting um, a, a new society. It's, it would be comparable to the 
AA. I was going to call it the WA, the Waterholics Anonymous. <laughs> People can write notice on the board. Instead of write, writing on it, do you know Bill W, you can write, do you know Christopher T, because uh, <laughs> those in AA will know what I mean. So sometimes in our way of things, we look around us and there's a perception there and the perception gives rise to certain... Uh, please, before we bring your water, 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 water in in all future, sit in all future sittings, if you dare. Uh, <laughs> so in our perceptions and, and feelings which arise and the contact um, out of those feelings, Sometimes from the past, the influence and the impact of the past, they uh, enter into the present, and as I say, sometimes in uh, light and hopefully good-spirited ways, and sometimes in those ways, as I said earlier, which have a, a negative, uh, hard tone and keep the heart, as it were, uh, genuinely uh, closed down, which is uh, perhaps the greatest of all human tragedies. So in our relationship, in our presence, there is a situation, as I say, of arising, of circumstances and the passing of circumstances and the new arising of circumstances and their passing and in that contact there there's the self and the world that appears with its arising and passing and appears again with its arising and passing and the self is most predominant in some situation which has arisen in our life and matters to us very much in those moments we feel and we think at those times the strongest in terms of I situations which arise in our life which impact upon us and have a strength to them and in the acceleration there that's the time when we feel I am when we feel me most when we feel my life or my position most of all in that arising which exists in relationship to something past present or future and this we're concerning is what arises The teachings, the spiritual uh, teachings in the, uh, the tradition, the, the Buddha Dharma um, uh, tradition, has very, very wisely and I think very um, beautifully and significantly highlighted, to a, to a significant degree, the place of uh, arising and passing, what is called anicca, impermanence in, in life. Unfortunately, what of course does occur with uh, far too much frequency that, like most things, it, bec it becomes rhetoric. It becomes some corny, um, hackled uh, cliché of uh, the spiritualists. And, and in its usage in that way, when something is arising and passing, of great significance, a person may say to herself, himself, or to others, oh, well, everything's, everything's coming and going, everything's impermanent, everything changes, as though that somehow throwing out some uh, one-liner, uh, like, like that, that's not even a one-liner, is it? It's a two-worder. Throwing, throwing something like that out somehow is supposed to make all the difference. And it won't make uh, any difference. Just talking impermanence won't make any difference. Just describing it, just um, um, believing in it or, or whatever is not what the heart of the teachings are about. The teachings are essentially and fundamentally, of course, to set us free. It's the only purpose of them. The rest is all uh, extras to that. So when we take care, when we look at right now, what's actually arising in our life like right now, 
during the course of the rhythm of this particular day in your existence, what sort of things have been standing out most noticeably and most significantly? Because in that, as I say, the self-existence appears, it, it shows itself. One of the things which, as it were, fly in the face of change in life is that, in a way, which acts almost like a stranglehold on a human being, which uh, human beings resist with tremendous might and force, not totally without some wisdom in it, I might say, and I'll try and address that in a moment. And that is what flies in the face of change in life is the whole notion of continuity. This idea, and it is only uh, an idea, is for something to last, for something to last. So where there is something where it isn't so much a pressure, it's not uh, crowding in on our existence, and which we appreciate, and particularly which generates um, a general pleasant feeling and association. It's fairly normal and natural enough that there is the wish inside that this will have a persistence, will have some continuity to it. And if we say to, say to ourselves or to somebody, whatever it might be, oh, it's just impermanent as well. You know, you, you hear these Buddhist monks doing this. You know, it's just this. It's just impermanent. It will all go. It will all pass. And sometimes when it's like that, it has to me, and I have heard it over the years, it has a kind of dismissive tone about it. It's just, oh, it's just, it's going to go, it's going to go. And, oh, God, is it really? So... <laughs> This feeling then, as the, the, there's a kind of reaction through the potency of the label upon delightful experiences of life, upon experiences which we appreciate in life, and there's naturally enough, whoever, whatever, wherever, whenever, however, however there is some wish that accompanies it for some continuity. And sometimes, the feeling of continuity, of a circumstance which you are related to or I am related to in life, it might be that the wishes, the wishes is that despite the ups and downs, the rising and falls, within the event, within the circumstance, there is quite often the wish for a continuity, that there is a thread which continues even though ups and downs in that circumstance, in that relationship, whatever, continue. That wish for the continuity is that the, the heart's wish, I think somewhat misplaced, but nevertheless, the heart's wish to try to find that which is permanent. To find that which is permanent. There is a wish for it. What happens, I think, in life is that the wish is there and one wishes to find that permanence there, and also the wish for continuity and permanence also is symbolic of a wish for security. So here's this world that we, that we live in, and we're challenged to live in this, in this world, and I hope we have the, the metal to go into it deeply. There is this world that we live in of this fluctuation of rise and fall of circumstances. A relationship to the rise and fall, the coming and going, the impermanence may vary from one person to another, but the fact of it in everyday life is something you and I must face day in, day out, like it or not. 
It doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what your hopes are. Life isn't made for you and me. It's not meant to in or intended to fit in with our ideas of continuity. It's not intended to fit in with our ideas of, of uh, change in, uh, in terms of, yes, I want that to go, but I want this to stay. Life will not cooperate. It's, at, it's adamant about it. And either we live with the life or we live with our fictional, fictionalized ideas of it. So I say, there, yet in all of that, coming and going, you, you've, been, you've been so close to somebody in your life, you can't imagine being close, and then that person has gone out of your life, that person has said, bye, have a nice day, and disappeared from one's existence, and one is left with feelings and emotions and all the challenges that may take place, the, the influences possibly of the old, as I said before, and those old changes feeding into the present, and all of that can impact, shock the system sometimes. And yet there is the wish, as I mentioned, for continuity, there is the wish for permanence, and there is the wish for security. Are we looking in the wrong direction? That we don't have to negate the wish. We don't have to negate the, the interest for that, nor certainly not the possibility. But is it that the way that the mind is moved, the way that it's fashioned, the way that it connects and views this world, that somehow or other we move in such a way, and in that movement, we, it puts us in the wrong direction. It's not so much that it's bad, or it's wrong, or we have to get rid of our interest in permanence and, secu and security in life, but where we go for it, it cannot provide it. It cannot provide it. And so one sees again, and we have wondered it surely many, many times in our life, we, we look at a human being that we, that we know, maybe look at ourselves, and we think, compared, compared to the, 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 the poor of Bihar, where uh, Shadra and I go every uh, January to uh, uh, serve the Dharma, in, one could say, one's got it made here. Sometimes a person looking and saying, compared to some of those people who are homeless, the poor, neglected people of the, s of the streets in one's own city, and, and the, the, the crime of that, in fact, the, and the ongoing tragedy of it, one one's can't, has nothing to complain about, compared. And then sometimes we look at people who appear incredibly affluent, who have got substantial inheritances, who have got financial security, who seem to have a lot of friends, who uh, have are well qualified, who have got all the, the good looks and the beauty and the health and all the vitamin pills they could ever want, etc., <laughs> etc. Et and in that relationship to, to all of that seem incredibly insecure, incredibly afraid of life, incredibly un 
uncertain, unable to deal with change in, in any way. And one looks and says, how could it be? You've, you've got it made, you've got it all. Everything that the society could possibly uh, offer to you, 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 it's all available for you, etc., etc. And still, it has not provided that, and yet we imagine, and yet we believe, and yet we think that if we imitate that person, if we follow what's been dictated to us by the market forces, if we just um, look up to those who appear to have it, have it made, we perhaps will get to where they are, and you will. Unhappy, <laughs> insecure, dissatisfied, and wondering why one has wasted one's existence. So in our looking and our relationship, where is permanence in this, in this or this? What is, what is, and is there insecure, is there, sorry, security? What are the teachings that are, are pointing to that? What is the realization of, of that? In our process of life, in our movement and becoming of our existence as it uh, reveals and unfolds itself, we also have, which ought to uh, uh, sober us all up in our reflections, is that looking um, in the actual terms of life and its complement of death, no matter what views you or I or others may have about uh, uh, death, no matter how many stories we may have about uh, um, um, trying to find our way out of the bardo, as they were in some of the traditions, and very buzzword I notice uh, in different circles at the present time, etc. Maybe we're already, as some have pointed out, including Tibetans, already in a bit of a, a bardo already. And so sometimes they say when we look at death itself, and the consideration, and the tradition has said, please, don't, in our reflections upon death, it can be a very invaluable friend to us. It can be a an invaluable friend to us because it can put into perspective the movement of the rise and falls of our self-existence. That no matter what the view is, for sure as sure, as you have said to yourself on countless occasions, I'm sure, and as I have said and we say to ourselves, at the end, everything which we have acquired, accumulated, and achieved, is left behind. Not one drop, if there is anywhere to go, can we take with us. Let me hear this, it's said, it's said, it's so blatantly uh, obvious, and yet we live as though the self-existence is something which is eternal and will go on forever. We live in an idea of permanence, but the permanence has got misplaced. It's about the permanence of I. And in that, that I depends upon, rises and falls, comes and goes. What will contribute to us seeing that so clearly, clearly we, we take the belief and the deludedness out of this eye. 
You know, awarenesses of the, the rising and the falling, the coming and going of uh, circumstances in life. I do think one aspect of, of all, of all of this which is important is, is the environment. And as an environmentalist, when I use this particular concept, quite naturally, I find for myself, and hopefully for you too, it, the, it, the way the word arises is environmental. Environmental. And I do think in such circumstances of our life, we might be asking much too much of ourselves or of another to be able to sort out those pressure cooker situations in which we find ourselves in. And I do think the relationship and the impactfulness of the environment that we live in is significant. And the opportunities to break out of that can break the kind of um, uh, stream of consciousness, as the tradition will say, of which runs in a particular way, just by a break of environment, a break of a particular set of circumstances. And I, when I'm speaking of that, I mean from city to countryside, from home to retreat, all of those events are significant of themselves, just making the change, making the break. But also, in that respect, if I may say, it also is needed on a much um, more wider scale. And for uh, several years now, um, in different parts of, of the world, and I just referred to uh, India a moment or two ago, I do think it's invaluable for people to find time and opportunity, if possible, to break out of one's uh, culture and some of the suffocating circumstances that men and women find themselves in with the unrealistic expectation to be able to resolve all prof problems within the environment, within the environmental situation. And there are people who, without a second thought, just brush the dust off their feet, so to speak, and, and move into different circumstances, different environments, as a deliberate and conscious act of uh, freedom in this life. And we need people who, to do that. We need, in this world, I would say, a break from the kind of traditional um, being settled in one spot viewpoint and towards a life where there's an opportunity for fresh forms of homelessness in different ways to, to uh, express that and never for a moment to um, regard the circumstances of one's own life as being absolutely fixed in one spot. Never, not never to think that, that restricted and, and uh, tight way, that to really regard the, the earth as our, as our home. And we need new kinds of pilgrims on this earth, new kinds of people who, who really will say, let's explore in different ways. And then families don't, don't, uh, don't, don't stop that. Having children doesn't naturally inhibit that automatically. So say, in a world of change, in the world of rising and falling, in the world of the momentum of circumstances uh, in, in our life, I think there's a, a great possibility for each and every person to look and to bring awareness to our existence 
and an awareness to our existence which says nothing whatsoever is fixed. That we haven't in any way in our life carved our circumstances into rock. Nothing, nothing, nowhere for anybody. And sometimes when we begin to say, possibly, the potential is there, the consideration is there, the reflection is there, the meditating upon is, is there, and we bring that kind of focus and aw- awareness. It can be something of an upheaval inside. It can be shaking up things which one has taken for granted and got stuck with in one's life. But it can open up life tremendously. The force of life can begin to move through us. And that whether it's being in one place, the appreciations of that can flower. So one is not taking it for granted. One is not seeing where one is in the same kind of conditioned way from one day to the next. And for others it's up and off. And why not? So I mean, all, all, all of this I say, it's, it's since life and the circumstances of life are one of change, they are one of significant comings and goings and all those experiences, that wisdom in life is staring the changes directly in the face. It's the willingness of human beings to say no to socialized pressures, to say no to the potency of economic forces, to say no to the pursuit and the displays of um, um, affluence and ostentatious living and all those corruptions of heart and mind. That the capacity to say no, N-O, with a, an exclamation at the, at the mark, it's not as some kind of moralistic endeavor. It's not some act of self-righteousness to say no to all of that. It's the saying no to that in order that something else can begin to come through, shine through. It's for a purpose. And so what does that, what does that mean? So sometimes in the tradition, spiritual traditions I'm uh, talking about here, very old ones of, of course, and contemporary uh, ones, ones uh, as well, and that whole sense of continuity in a different kind of sense. To give you an example, um, yesterday I was speaking with a, a, a person from a, a Native American Indian uh, tradition, and in the moments that we were talking uh, together, one of the aspects of what I uh, speaking about is the, the value of, uh, of tradition and how sometimes we get very much disassociated from all of this because of, I think, market forces being, uh, which has to be held accountable here and we, in the, in the name of choice, which is, of course, a, uh, a huge lie perpetuated on human beings, that one sees something gets easily lost, easily lost. And how there much which we can genuinely learn from those who have come before us and those of the present. A genuine kind of learning in life and the care for that and the display of that. And I told him of a particular example which I can recall. Um, About 20 uh, years ago, I had the privilege 
of uh, traveling to um, north, um, the northern part of Thailand. This is um, before my ordination as a, a Buddhist uh, monk. And we went from um, um, Chiang Mai, which some of you will know, very no, rather nice uh, large town in the north of Thailand. Then you go further north, you go to Chiang Rai, it's a much smaller town. Then you go further north still, and the last major village at that time was a village called Mei Chan. And then from there, uh, we went by um, uh, uh, donkey and uh, horse um, through right up through to the, the, the far north in on the Burmese-Thai uh, border. And we were in the village of the Mao uh, people who had traveled down years, centuries and centuries ago from uh, southern China, from Yunnan, and had taken their uh, base there and they brought their traditions and uh, cultures with them. And the, through the translator, the head uh, man of the village said to me that he, and he uh, very uh, happily uh, recited them to me, he knew the name of his grandfather, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his great-great-grandfather, and he went back for 55 generations to when the, when the people first traveled from southern Yunnan and, and southern China and, and down um, into the hills of uh, this, uh, this region, the far north of Thailand. And he said one of the things which was important, so they have a sense of that tradition and that continuity was that his children knew that, remembered his name, their grandfather's name, their great-grandfather's, into the 56th generation. And those thing, things of, of life, I think, are important and very, very valuable for us. In that though the one generation arises and falls and comes and goes, just as uh, you and I rise and fall and come and go in this gen generation, it, 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 it says, yes, we are living here. We are the people who experience the earth at this particular time and stage. Our existence rises. It will, it will fall. We will all be gone this time and next number of, uh, of years. And yet there's a, a flow of humanity and a flow of experience there. And sometimes the circumstances which give shape to our life, we can put that into a kind of perspective. We have a sense about things about the relativity of our existence, the everyday actuality of our ex existence, the, the, the movement and the presence of it. And somewhere in that awareness, in that expansive awareness of our existence, I say if that awareness is, is there, much of the pressures and the dramas and the crises of life will have no meaning. One won't even use these words. And there's a difference, a dis uh, a different kind of sense about things because self is not the center of the universe. How could it possibly be? And I say none of that is not for some kind of end in, end in itself. And as the American Indian said to me uh, yesterday, and if I may say my daughter, her name's uh, Nashona, it's also American uh, Indian uh, name, and as he said, he said, we believe that all our generations, which some last century there were 30,000 uh, uh, Shoshones of that uh, particular tribe, after the gold rush and all the, the greed and the hatred, the numbers were down to 300. 
now they have risen now to about 2,000 through human greed and human rage and human, human violence and all that has gone along with a terrible tragedy of, of, of the savagery of the culture that we to some extent have come from. And yet in all of that he said we, the way we view things in terms of the continuity of things that we go back to the beginning of time. And one might hear that very f in the first thing here, that what does that mean? One goes back to the beginning of time. And it could sound like, oh, it's a kind of metaphor for tens of thousands of years ago, and it can be perceived in that way. But I say, if we look in another kind of way, and in our relationship, and look in another way, at the up evils, the movements of self into existence, up and down, and the pressures which come. If we can explore and understand, you know, it's a storm in a teacup. Just a, a little movement of life expressing itself in a particular, a particular way. And we're close and, and intimate with it. That awareness of that, of the experience of this moment, of this generation, that awareness of that puts us on the edge of time. The very awareness brings us to the edge of our mind, to the edge of time. Why? It's insofar as that awareness embraces and acknowledges the passages of the past. If we weren't aware of them, how could we talk about them? How could we remember and think about them? The awarenesses of what's showing itself in the present moment and all the dance that goes on uh, with that. And yet in the dance of life, so sadly, so often we have forgotten to dance. And the awarenesses of what might possibly be in the future. And all time is tied up with this past, present and future. Past, present and future. And there's not awareness of that. We're on the edge of time. We live on the right on the edge of time. And there's something profoundly beautiful about this and profoundly significant about this. So in the relationship to what's unfolding in our as the living generation and in our experiences which are taking place, in that awareness of that, we say so often oh, the awareness of all of this is valuable and it is significant, which it is, to help me know myself. It's true. Awareness is the beginning of change for a human being. I want to be aware of this, to learn from this. And I hopefully today has provided you with sufficient awareness out of your own being and out of my being that whatever the circumstances of today have been, one has felt, felt, one has learned something out of it. So the teachings have said again and again, this Atma Vidya, Atma means self, Vidya means knowing. Knowing about oneself is an important duty, a dharma, a duty of human beings to know about oneself. And these places are, are, are strongholds of, of awareness to know about oneself not through theory, not through school, not through any other means, but the purest means available for a human being. Direct experience of what's going on inside of oneself. It's the authority for experience. 
And though you and I might greatly appreciate what others tell us, and the information, and the insights, and the skills that others have, nevertheless, somewhere something mystical takes place when a human being can say to herself or himself, here I am on this earth experiencing this moment and something extraordinary is taking place because life is aware of itself. Life can know itself. This is an extraordinary thing. Life, something has happened in the vastness of all of this that consciousness can direct its attention to the fields of experience, to w those things of time, my past, my present and my future, and look at it and work with it. Life has that, found that capacity. Nobody knows how, nobody can rationalize it or shape it, nobody can fathom it. What happened to consciousness that something occurred, that that became possible, to know oneself, atma vidya, self-knowing. And that self-knowing which takes place for a human being is not, oh, I know myself. That isn't very arrogant and conceited and foolish thing if you and, ever, uh, uh, and I say, I know myself. Because when we say like that, the very moment we say that, the knowing has stopped. What are we living in? We're living in the past. And so when we say to uh, other people, don't tell me anything about myself. Don't you think I know myself? <sighs> Heavy number, that one. Sometimes people's awareness of the, move from the movement of our self, their awareness of us is sometimes considerably more accurate than the awareness that comes from inside to ourself. So there's this capacity of awareness from so-called, there's no outside, so-called outside to the changing face of self. And there's the awareness that comes so-called, there isn't any really, inside to the awareness of the changing face of self. And that awareness influences it. We've had this experience in our life where suddenly we've stopped and we've seen, Whew, now I know what's going on. And it's made a difference. Now I see what's happening. Now it's clear to me. So this power of awareness has some capacity to change things with the awareness and with the insight which s contributes to our deep well-being. Are we truly bringing <laughs> awareness? Are we truly abiding and dedicated day in and day out to a conscious existence as our duty? as our priority for ourselves and others. In that, as I said before, in that uh, awareness of that, sometimes we get the idea, particularly in these kind of teachings which take place here, that it's the awareness of the self which is the all-important thing. Please, 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 it is not the all-important thing. The self, as I said before, is a minor figure on the expanse of life. So what does it mean to be aware of myself? Be aware of myself breathing on this earth, as we have been doing today. Aware of myself sitting and experiencing bodily life. Aware of my thoughts and my feelings and my moods and my 
gesticulations and my judgments and, and all that rising and falling, the whole vibration of one's existence. Is it just to be av- aware of that for itself? We're just here to look at our mind, look at our body, look at our life. Are we just here that awareness focuses on things of time? What was going on in my life, what is going on in my life, and what might be going on in my life. Is that exclusively it? To this one, I would say no, 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 and no again. Because the awareness is on the edge of time. Because it looks at it, it accommodates it, it sees it, it knows about it, it explores it, it senses it, it feels it, it reflects on it, it dwells on it, it invests in it, it perpetuates it. Yet this awareness is on the edge of things. On the edge of what? What is it on the edge of? That which is on the edge of, could that be unchanging? Could that be the true security of existence? Could that be something which doesn't rise and fall? Could that be something which never comes and goes? It is there in which all this resides and has its final rest. Could this awareness on the edge of time be the intimator of that which all this finds its final resting place? And it's this that we are here to realize, this that we are here to discover. And when we know that which is the true security, that which which truly stays, that which doesn't come and go, that which is the true anchor of existence, then all the self will fit in rather easily with the everyday world. Problems and crises and pressures and emergencies and and dramas and, and dramas that all tied up with permanence and impermanence and all, all of that, it's not the truth. One has realized the ultimate truth and that ultimate truth is one's true base, true home. May all beings see into life. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings discover the true security. promoting religious dialogue is in silence. Faith in Awakening was a conference for contemplatives from the Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, Jain and Sufi monastic traditions. Suzanne Evans went along and heard first from a Buddhist monk at the Amavarati Monastery, Vivendra Savana. We had a morning puja, a morning chanting session and after that all the monks and nuns from different traditions just took the opportunity just to walk around quietly in the field outside in this monastery and it could have been at any monastery in any country of the world. Silence is the common ground within the contemplative traditions. Benedictine nun Sister Lucy Bryden of Turvey Abbey may not share the faith of the Sufi or Hindu delegate but says that in silence she feels at one with them. We find that all is one and all is different, that that we're on the same spiritual journey although our language, which is the face value level, often separates us. Whereas on a deeper level, in silence and praying together, we we are aware that we're on the same journey. The monastic tradition, says meditation teacher and retreat leader Christopher Titmus, is therefore of great significance in interfaith dialogue. If we put aside some of our 
traditional concepts of religion, the books, the gurus, and even the concept of God, actually we find very easily a very common ground of experience and insight. But is it really that easy to put away the, the theological baggage, if I can call it that, mm. of the different faiths? Because, for instance, even this morning, a Jain nun came into some conflict with the Benedictine, saying, well, you, you, you can't have God. You're starting from the wrong standpoint. So can you really get away from that theological um, baggage? One, one, one can't get away from it completely. We have to acknowledge the sheer diversity of those kind of views. But the question which must arise for all, including the Jain and the Benedictine, is can every view that we enunciate in some way or other be held in a profound contemplative silence? And that it's the depth of silence and what is revealed through it that truly matters rather than the views that we put out. For the Theravada Buddhist monk, Watching Hindu dancing could clash head-on with a religious precept which says you must refrain from going to entertainments of any kind. But when the venerable Sabano joined Brahma Kumaris as they opened a new retreat house and found such entertainment on offer, he realized the value of different expressions of a contemplative life which shares certain moral and spiritual ideals. They're a very new tradition. We're one of the oldest monastic traditions, 2,500 years old. We have a lot of strength that comes from that ancient tradition but they were reaching out very much to a very broad range of people that would never probably have anything to do with a, a buddhist monastery and yet one could see the same values were being voiced the same commitment was there as well as touching on the difficulties of living a celibate lifestyle and coping with restricted personal freedom and self-renunciation the conference spent some time considering ways in which the contemplative life might enrich the outside world. John Jones, who practices true yoga, believes the two may not be as mutually exclusive as they might at first appear. I mentioned that uh, Al Gore, the Vice President of the United States, in the recent Earth Summit said that if humankind is, is to survive into the second half of the next century, we must rediscover our sense of sacredness for all life. And I think the contemplatives have a special contribution to make here because they have the tools, the experience, to actually share this experience of sacredness and bring people in everyday life into that experience. And I, and I think that is actually vital. And so he's encouraged by the increase in people sampling the contemplative life, mainly at retreat centres, like Gaya House in Devon, founded by Christopher Titmus. Two and a half million people went on a, a three-day retreat somewhere in the United States last weekend. With the decline of Sunday morning church services as a general Western phenomena, what's replacing it is people saying, I need to get away and I need somewhere where I can get some genuine spiritual nourishment. And naturally enough, we want to encourage people to come and listen to teachings, to learn what meditation is, and its practical use in daily life. Christopher Titmus ending Suzanne Evans's report. Yitzhak Rabin. <coughs> right. Um, what's the date? 15. Um, this is uh, um, an interview um, conducted by Mark Chamberlain of Ashburton with Christopher Titmus on September the 15th, 1993. Okay. okay. Right. Um, what I'd like to do is just start with a few basics about yourself, and sort of move on to why the things top Please. Um, 
first thing, how long have you lived in the area? Um, I've been here about uh, 11 years yeah. and have lived um, in Dennis Road for that period of time in, yeah. in this house. Um, what brought you to Tottenham? Well, initi initially um, we had a small community house in Kent. There were 20 of us uh, there, but I felt that where we were, 50 miles from London, we were still in the shadow of London. I decided with my partner and our young baby to move to the West Country. I uh, drove through Totnes. I never heard of Totnes at that time or anything about it, but I liked the feel of the place immediately. And I said to uh, Gwenwyn, um, let's move here. We didn't know anybody and two other friends also at the same time moved down here yeah. uh, uh, as well and that's how we found ourselves here. At, at that stage 11 years ago, was there anything that you could pinpoint that you found um, attractive to the town? Um, there were two or three things. Um, um, one was that there was the Steiner School had started. Mm -hmm. They had about 20 pupils at that time. It now has 250. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a women's bookshop, later to be lost in a major fire on the plains. Um, there was um, um, the Natural Health Centre. And so there was a feeling of something alternative. And then when we arrived here, I heard about Dartington and its progressive forms of education. And that, and that attracted you, did it? That was, yes. that was what you were looking for? As, um, I, wanted to be in an environment where I felt there was the possibility for nourishment and growth and where I could possibly make some contribution as well. And there was that in the atmosphere yeah. in and around Totnes. Yeah. Um, since you've been in Totnes mm. over the 11 years, have there been any... Um, has, there, has there been a common theme to what, what people perceive as starting this sort of feeling within the area? Um, I, I think the very first spark has to be the Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore, that he um, started the school Shanti Nikatan, which is a creative cultural uh, school in Bengal, in the eastern part of India. He told his secretary, Leonard Elmhurst, mm -hmm. to go and start something up mm -hmm. in England. Mm -hmm. Tagore said he'd been to Torquay, this is in the 1920s, mm. and said he liked Torquay. Find a place near Torquay. So through this channel, it ended up with um, buying Dartington. And some of the pupils from Dartington stayed on mm. in the area. Mm. And, and I think that, that was the initial spark. Um, but it went from that and to s the emphasis went off Dartington, eventually to Totnes, and Dartington became included in the Totnes mm. environments, in Totnes ambience. And during the 1980s, Totnes, in leaps and bounds, became a major focal point, not only in Britain but internationally. Has there been a divergence between Dartington and Totnes then? Do they now represent very different? I don't think they do. I in terms of the lang general language which is used, one speaks of um, the alternative scene of Totnes. Mm. One would have to include in that 
recent developments at Dartington, such as the Schumacher College, yeah. um, the arts, <coughs> the uh, alternatives in um, education, organic farming, and the whole sense of the estate. But one also has now the parallel equivalent on the southern side of Totnes with Sharpham, with its projects and its programs. So the, the town is bordered by these two huge estates, both with equal values. Um, since living in the Totnes area, mm. um, have you seen the town change particularly in any respect um, with regard to the, the alternative scene, mm. as you put it, or the size of the town, the type of people in the town, the type of shop? I think it's changed um, um, dramatically. Yeah. Um, first of all, in the world of all the alternatives, which would have to be spirituality yeah. and its diversity, um, education, mm -hmm. the kind of schools and attitude, um, health and healing. Yeah. When you think that there are 25 alternative practitioners, homeopaths and, so, and uh, uh, psychotherapists, etc., natural health centre, yeah. um, the various communities, the Let's Project, the alternative in e economics, um, the vegetarian uh, restaurants, and the Alexander Sex Technique School, on and on and on it goes. What the major change is that all of these alternatives have become integrated into the fabric of the town. Yes. It's part of the town. I People often ask me, um, what kind of numbers are affected in the town? I think, with Totnes specifically, that most people, in some way or other, experience the influence of the alternative movement in the town. Yeah. Do you think there's, there's a, a line between assimilation and integration? If you become mm. assimilated, you adopt the characteristics, mm. whereas you integrate the alternative scene would perhaps filter out into the rest of Totnes, but there wouldn't necessarily be any conversion going on. Do you feel that though there's been some assimilation, that people in Totnes who at one time would perhaps be considered conventional mm. have adopted the ideas because <coughs> of the presence, because of the ambience? I, th I, think, I think the uh, um, assimilation um, certainly has taken place. That tends to uh, show itself and its acceptance from people using the resources. I think probably in healing mm. and medicine, alternative medicine is the most common ground yeah. there. I mean, some of the medical doctors, the MBDs, the physicians in the high street send their patients to the natural health centre, yeah. as an example. Yeah. So there's a, a, a lot of interflow, interlapping going on in that way. And I think also with the, um, the town that there's a comfort that they're in an understanding the movement for alternative values is a very serious and thoughtful one. Mm. And like myself, I live in a suburban street in Totnes, in a little terraced house. As my friends, with some amusement, describe me as mainstream alternative. And I think that's a fair enough description. But I think the important message that goes out in the alternative movement is that there is much more to life than simply producing and consuming, which is a value conventional straight society imposes. You know, you, you're here to produce and consume. And we say there's a lot more to that. Sometimes the establishment is, un like the church, conventional church, is unable to provide all of that nourishment. Therefore, there's this 
expansive awareness of, the, of spiritual life. Do you see Totnes as a centre which has attracted many people? Is it, has there been, I'm saying they agree that there's perhaps some assimilation, <coughs> or do you feel that the alternative community here is predominantly one that's migrated into the town because they've heard about it? Yeah. It, various challenges. Yeah. That, um, it's uh, essentially, as you point out, people have migrated here. I'm a migrant here. Um, I wouldn't consider myself a, a grockle no. <laughs> any any more. I might have done when I first arrived, but I've been here for 11 years. I'm active in every level of the town. I've stood for the Green Party twice, for South Hams, for this constituency. And I'm very much concerned with the economic and spiritual welfare of the town. So what has happened is people come. I bet you on every train there's at least one person. I mean, it is that much coming into the town. Yeah. One only has to go to market on a Friday, yeah. look at the scene in the market. So it's become a buzzword. In the last year, I've travelled in four continents. Yeah. I just got back from San Francisco last week. I was, in I was in India in January. I was in Australia in um, October and uh, at least four or five trips to Europe. Wherever I go, I mentioned what we're doing in Totnes. I take with me leaflets and flyers and information. I tell people this and this and this is going on and people respond to that. They come. Mm. They come for trainings and get skill levels up in different things. They come just out of curiosity. They come to stay in communities. They come to see what an alternative movement which is integrated yeah. into everyday life is about. And there's a cutting on the wall there. That's from the um, Toronto Star, yeah. which is the Sunday newspaper for the, for the city. In, and the, the journalist interviewed me there with some amusement. Um, Totnes is described as um, the alternative capital of the world. And I think, well, its status has gone up a little bit, but I'm not going to dispute it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that's a good thing? Um, I, I'm, I prefer alternative to um, uh, new age. Yeah. I think though um, I have tremendous support and sympathy for New Age travellers and their right to have environments, there are many such travellers living in and around Totnes and, and I think their rights must be fully respected. What has happened as an outcome is that New Age travellers, New Age, the word New Age has got associated with travellers and all the difficulties. So. I think quietly the concept of New Age is being put to rest. And I think the good thing is that what is taking place here, it has its flaky end. You know, I mean, it's definitely got a flaky end in Totnes and that everybody knows it. But it's also got a deep social message that's going on. And so when you ask me, is it a good thing? Unequivocally, yes. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with the sort of smallest beautiful idea? Very have? much. Um, do you think? Totnes is sort of the way forward as a working example of a small, fairly integrated, sustainable community working with um, the was it the um, intermediate technology mm. that type of thing like natural paints um, places like the Conquer Shoe, Green Shoes, yeah, um, paperworks, recycled paper, green yeah. books. Do you think then this is sort of a demonstration to, to other towns and places, the way forward? Yes, of sustainability. Um, I I. Um, do think that uh, Totnes is the most 
serious social experiment that is available anywhere. Yes. Anywhere that I, in the four continents that I go to, yeah. that's why I stay. Yeah. And I am a small contributor to that mm. uh, as co-founder of Gaia House, co-founder of Sharpham Community, co-founder of the Barn Community, and as a, a green, very committed green person. So in my experience, what's taking place here is genuinely significant, yeah. yet and those things that you describe in terms of small business is a very important way, way forward. Re all of this has begun in the last decade. Mm. It really is a, since the early 80s phenomena and, we are, and it's very, very early days. The metal of it in terms of economic practicalities and in terms of the integration and assimilation is going to take another decade before we really see. Is it just a buzz thing of the 80s and 90s, or is it really going to have staying power? That, that's, it's too early to form a judgment on that. Um, do you think there is staying power? Do you think there's I, 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 I think yes, for two reasons. Um, one is economic growth, which if it goes up like 2 or 3% per year is what the government always wants, it's going to you know, double the, the pressure, and it's unsustainable, the thinking of the present government. Um, the other is with um, the degree of sophisticated technology, it will mean, as we now have like 20 million unemployed in the European community, there's got to be alternatives. We have got to learn, in fact, to work less, I think, work less in terms of hours and live on less. Yeah. And got to, you know, cut our cloth to suit the climate. And Totnes, with its sensing that there are other things in life besides working one's guts out all week and making money to more modesty in living, less expenditure, lowering the standard of living for those who are privileged to have a job yeah. so that life is more relaxed and affordable and yet creative in which the environment matters as much as our own personal life. Yeah. Um, do you think that the size of Totnes is important? Um, it's, it's, it is. Um, in that it's, to me, it's manageable. In other words, when, say, I'm, um, let's give an example, in Marin County, it, which is in uh, the... California, Yeah, California, in the Bay Area. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Uh, and in other, other places as well, I mean, around the world here, and in Britain, in fact, um, there's something almost of kind of convenience it's the movement can grow in such a way that for the population of Tutnes, which is about 9,000, one might double it with the surrounding villages. Mm. Uh, 25,000 since the environment extends to Buckfastley and uh, Ashburton, yeah. and that it's all part of the environment of Tutnes in a way. Yeah. That one feels it's, there's an accessibility to it and that we're not lost in like a big place, say, you know, like Marin or North London or a big city. So that's the value. Mm. Um, do you think Totnes has influenced places like Ashburton and Buckersley? Because I know there's the permaculture experiment in, in Buckersley. Yes. And um, take the Wyndhams, for example, in Ashburton, the crystal therapy. Of course, yes. Sort of thing. Um, do you think there, perhaps, as a result of Totnes? I, I, I wouldn't like to put it like that, simply because <laughs> Caroline and other friends, you know, the friends in concern with... Uh, uh, um, I, I 
it would centralize Totnes to me too much. And I turn to, tend to think of it in this area. Therefore, an equal relationship. In other words, what's going on in Ashburton and Buckfastly um, is actively supporting the whole movement around here and that we're all in it together. Um, there are definitely, with Totnes being, I think for property, perhaps the most expensive place in uh, Devon. Um, you know, there's a big demand to live in Totnes. I think initially there was an overspill. People moved to Ashburton and Buckfastly for economic reasons. But uh, it's just a general atmosphere in which we support each other. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a few structures already. In yeah. Are there any other key ones that you see as being relatively instrumental in fostering the development of this the feeling? Um, people have mentioned to me Arcturus and the role that they've played in providing the education. Arcturus is a very important focal point. Uh, it's the largest alternative bookshop in Devon. It provides not only a very typically Tottenesian laid-back atmosphere mm. when you go in the shop, um, but a good range of alternative books, and it's a very important feature of Totnes. I, I don't think there's a single thing in Totnes which can summarize Totnes. Um, when my friend uh, Michelle returns, she'll give to you this flyer which I'm preparing, and that details a fair amount of things. I, if, and if, that, if you think, because you're doing so much research, that there's anything which I could add to it, um, I'd be very, very happy to, of course. Um, so it's a wide range of things, um, and it'd be the value of it is it is hard to specify one or two central things. So there's a collective feel to it. Exactly. Very decentralized and the yeah. best green tradition, very eclectic, very open-minded, um, mm. and, um, and its strength is in its diversity. Like an ecosystem. Yeah, exactly, precisely. Yeah. Do you, do you see the people here as having um, clear common goals, if you like? Um, do you? I mean, obviously there are a number of key individuals like yourself, say Pat Kitto. Yes, she's um, been very important person. Set up the Let Scheme um, yes. the community centre. Um, do you think that they have a a vision of the future, or that they're? I mean, people to use the terminology, people have said following their own life path mm. or um, life journey. Do you think that it's a case of everybody's come here to do their own thing, mm. um, that they're all following their own life journey, um, being open-minded, um, more spiritual, or, or that there are sort of visions of the future which people are aiming towards? Yes. Um, um, it, 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 of course it, it, it varies. Um, two things come, come to mind here. First one has to make a comparison with conventional society. Conventional society is such that there's a great deal of isolation and individualism. Families don't know their neighbours. Um, person may be having a difficult time in their personal life, has no real friends. Nobody can really share with what's going on. So the, the community of Totnes is endeavouring to provide support and depth, that people can share what their emotional life is, their personal problems. Um, there's a whole network of 
friends and counsellors and insightful people as part of the community there. It's very in, you know, a very informal situation. My own home, um, you know, outwardly apart from the pictures on the walls, of course, <laughs> expressing my various interests, but uh, it's just a conventional home. What might make it a little different is it's also like a railway station. People come in the house, come and I come downstairs some days, and there's somebody sleeping on my in my front room, <laughs> and um, they've let themselves uh, in. They know uh, where the key is, and I just go, oh hi, you know, etc. And it's that kind of informality, which I think is a part of community life. Um, the other is that people who come here may initially come here because they feel that they're going to be accepted. And there is an accepting mm. attitude. Even the local council mm. and the district council have had to learn mm. that there's a lot going on in Totnes. And they may not like, they may prefer people who walk down the street with their dog to have a proper lead. And they may discriminate against those who use a piece of rope to take their <laughs> dog down the street, but still it's a dog and a person. Yeah. And they've got to get used to the idea yeah. of that. Yeah. And the local newspaper may not like, or not those from newspaper to its credit, but the, um, the report in the local newspaper may not like people sitting on the pavement uh, in a, or at the Civic Square, particularly on a Friday and other days, playing their music and hanging out, etc. But it's a part of Totnes, yes. and one's got to get used to the idea that, that it's a comfortable and accepting place for people to be, and we, and we provide that. Some people come to, s to learn something. And I say to these people who come, learn something, wonderful you come, but for goodness sake, don't stay here. Yes. There is a certain cotton wool effect. You know, it is nice and comfortable. When I hear people say, oh, I've got to go to London, I hate London, it's so dirty, smoky, all that intensity, people rushing around, etc. You know, to me, that person's getting small-minded. Yeah. And it, as I was speaking at a talk at, at Sharpham last night, people also have to get out of Totnes. What I want people to do is to come to Totnes, learn about community, learn about sharing, learn about uh, a value system available, get some skills, and then go back to their town, their yeah. city. Spread their, the word. And spread, yeah, not of Totnes, no. but of, of their wisdom and what they've learned and apply those skills in other communities. Mm. And Totnes is a focal point. But some say, oh God, it's so, well, I can't. Well, who am I to speak here? <laughs> can arrive in Totnes and say, home. Yeah. This is the place, and many people have said, this is the place I've been looking for my whole life. Yeah. There obviously are frictions within the system. Oh, yeah. Um, if you want to know if you want to <laughs> specify them for you. <laughs> there are bridging points, like the community centre, which are obviously very accessible, like yeah. the church, which are very accessible. You can take it away back to your own home, read it mm. in your own front room. Um, to sort of discover it that way. Um, what I was going to ask you about was the carnival this year, the community carnival, yes. and the involvement of the church there as well. Yeah. Um, do you see that as a very important function in sort of making um, the alternative scene, which to some, uh, to some presumably are scared of it because of um, ignorance or that they're not mm. educated, or they, it's a fear of the unknown. Mm. Do you think community carnivals, that type of thing, are important? I think they're absolutely, vitally important. Yeah. As you know, the, uh, I think the Round Table had been running the carnival for years and done a, um, a terrific job. I would always go to the, the carnival, my, my daughter, 
and watch the, the carnival queen or queens coming, coming down. And, and the whole scene, the whole town, for the most part, would pour out to the carnival. I think because of financial reasons, the round table decided not to do it. So, you know, friends, the alternatives scene took it over, ran it on a shoestring from a little office above the uh, second-hand clothes shop. Yeah. And I thought, did a, remark a remarkable job. And even though eyebrows were raised when the initial intention was to drop the Carnival Queen, how can you drop the Carnival Queen? Because of the usual yeah. glorification of you know, woman in the saddle. And then you got this brilliant idea, Carnival Queen, Carnival King, Carnival Prince, Carnival Princess, Carnival Queen Mother, Queen Father. <laughs> <laughs> a great idea. Carnival Royal Family. Yeah, it's a Carnival Royal Family. Yeah. And, uh, and it just broke the old mould. Yeah. Plus, the introduction of a diversity, yeah. which, um, you know, all the new age kind of uh, entertainments yes. taking place. And it's, it's tough this. Yeah. And I, I, I thought it was terrific. And like the healing tents as well. Yeah, oh, you know, the healing tents and the, the poetry and the song and dance yeah. acts and the eccentricity of dress that people yeah. wear in Totnes. Yeah. It's a reflection of, of, of the town. Yeah. And though sometimes the more conservative local councillors and conservative more local business community may you know, just uh, take a rather aloof position, nevertheless, mm. the economic significance. Mm. If we take the Steiner School as an example, a tenfold increase in pupils is a tenfold increase in adults. Yeah and uh, maybe 20-fold, mother and father, whatever. And that all it br brings its own influence to Tartanesque. Mm. Um, oh, um, obviously, I mean, as some people have described it, there's been like a greening of Tartanesque. Yes. Other people's words, not mine. Um, do you think this is set to continue? That um, And then Anthony Steen had a New Age Day a little while ago. Yes. I don't know if it was just a I was. Go on, sorry, Matt. I was say, do, do you think this is set to continue? I know that there are doctors who refer patients for homeopathy. The, the church is certainly very open-minded in Totnes, indeed, far more than other places. They mm. have there's some Christmas lectures coming up um, that the church do, and they, they're doing guided meditation. Um, and there's, in fact, the Reverend Burdener, who's fairly local, is doing a degree in New Age, in the New Age at Exeter University. Is that right? Yeah, he's doing a degree in the New Age movement. So if you could um, give me his name and phone number, yeah, I'll give him a ring. Yeah. I'll um, delighted. Yeah. Um, do you think that's set to continue? That like the, the more conventional institutions and structures in the town, mm -hmm. like say just like three cooks, say for the bakery, who or another another bakeries and shops are having to stock or finding it um, beneficial to stock. I don't know. Um, Wholemeal flour, mm. sort of products, vegetarian foods. Mm. But this is sort of set to continue, a, a greening, if you like. Yes. Um, I think it's um, not only set to continue, but even going into our local supermarket, into Gateways, uh, I have noticed that the uh, greening of the supermarkets is gradually but significantly taking place in terms of vegetarian mm. diet. Um, with regard to the local member of parliament, um, one of the mothers, the background to this is one of the mothers wrote to him, met with him 
and speaking about Steiner School, he then said to her, look, why don't you have organized for me a whole day of looking at the alternative tutness, new age tutness. And he started at 8.30 in the morning. I and some others had breakfast with him at this woman's home <coughs> in Dartington. And then he went to different places, and then we had lunch together. Um, Anthony um, and I have been, you know, because of the political campaigns, I've got to know each other. I've re regularly sent him um, propaganda, scene, etc., etc., and also my books and stuff. And then I went up to, um, he invited me up to Parliament, and I met with him again there, and with um, Patrick Nichols, who's the Cambridge M Member of Parliament, and we discussed the New Age scene, New Age travellers, alternative uh, tartness, and also the general sense of Devon itself, in fact. Anthony suggested that I contact and put the information out to all the MPs in the West Country. He's the chairperson for West Conservative West Country MPs, to let them know. He said he didn't want to say just Tutness because it would sound like a little, you know, conceited, you know, in my constituency. But in a more general way, because there is a general attraction to the West Country. And I said I would do that. Um, I'm just finishing this leaflet, which you'll get a copy of, early draft. And within the next few weeks, I'll ensure that that goes to all the, uh, yeah. the MPs. Mm. So, in a, um, you asked me whether it was a publicity stunt on Anthony Steen's part. The tendency with politicians is to want to please. Yes. You know, that, that, that's the, one of the main reasons for their existence. Yeah. He knows full well. <laughs> Conservative Party yeah. ain't going to get votes in, in the alternative scene. I talked with him. He brought his wife as well, who's a child psychologist. And I would say, from my observation, and I'm very much sure with MPs particularly, yeah. that it, it is a genuine and authentic interest by Anthony Steed. It's, it's trans-political. He's curious about it. He sees that it's success, and he sees what impresses him, that it's economically viable. Yeah. Whether it's organic farming, or whether it's healing, whether it's the economic trading system that we have, um, whether it's the small businesses in paint and in paper, and all of that. He sees it's working. Yeah. He's got to take notice. So, not literally, but like a democracy in action, where the views of the people are being represented by their MP. Yeah, yeah. So, in, in that respect, um, he, he is, yeah. Um, what I like about him, I mean, many things, of course, you know, just his policies are kind of stomach. But nevertheless, what I like about it is the, the genuineness of the interest, the promptness of his replies, mm. and he will take up cases and causes. Mm. Yeah, he's a good local MP. It's just a pity that the politics are so appalling. Yeah. Um, assuming the, the, the population of Tottenham, say, were to, to hover around the 9,000 mark, yeah. um, obviously there are still therapist who is being attracted to the town. Yeah. Um, there's the Tottenham Healthiest Shop, and there's Green Life, which isn't that old. So that has obviously been going for quite a while, the Brioche, the yeah. Vegetarian Restaurant. Yeah. Do you think there's a sort of a carrying capacity to this lot where um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a capacity where you're going to get to a point where Tottenham cannot support any more of these sort of institutions, these... Um, yeah, is there a threshold? Because, yeah. Mm. 
Go on. One yes. person suggested that there was perhaps like a, a wash of people who flow in, like you said, and flow out again. There is. There are people who flow in and flow out. It's around the year flow, it's not a, just a, a summer flow. Um, I don't think there is a threshold, and the reason is that the potency of what's taking place mm -hmm. is such that many people are using the resources. Yeah. You go into the shops these days and you get you know, retired people with, uh, wearing a tie uh, or an elderly carry handbag in sex, mm. you know, buying. Mm. So it's, it, it, it's spreading out because mm. the public recognize that things like diet and health, mm. that junk food isn't, isn't the answer. So I th and what one does see in Totnes is that the shops which have the fastest turnover, mean where the lease they're selling them, Nearly all those that are trying to cater for the tourist industry mm -hmm. and they can't survive on a 12 months a year. Mm -hmm. But those places that you mentioned, mm -hmm. in fact, have, have a track record to them mm -hmm. of continuity in Totnes. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything you want to add about the town? Um, its uniqueness, uh, its role in the future? Yeah. Um, those things which I mentioned to you earlier in the interview yeah. that the small is beautiful thread and theme, mm. yet acknowledging that large isn't so bad either, mm. insofar as it's growing and, exp mm. and, uh, and expanding. And nothing specifically. Of course, one would like to see the local government have a, have a, a, a greater understanding about what's taking place here. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I do think on a, a small syndrome here, that like, the Safeways, new Safeways huge supermarket was a huge error of judgment by the local government mm. because it will have enormous pressure on our environment, roads especially, mm. it, will it will take away from Totnes High Street, it will put extra pressure under small businesses, people do more and more shopping for everything in that one supermarket, etc., uh, etc. Et I do think there needs to be more affordable homes for uh, people. So there's a lot at th on that side of things which need to be done. Um, for young people in this town, um, as I commented in a, in, a, in a talk for the Green Party recently, there's more life going on in the graveyard of St. Mary's Church and the High Street in the middle of the night than there is for the available for the young. Mm. And neither our MP nor anybody really has done anything really to address mm. that. So my daughter who attends Kevick's, you know, her friends who are 15, 16, 17 years of age, will say, Totnes, whoa, boring old place. Well, it is for them. Yeah. They can, all they can do is literally hang out on the High Street. Mm. And something community-wise for for the teenagers of the town needs to be offered. Do you think that it is one giant community or that there are separate communities? Or? Well, it's, um, the, 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 the wish is that it's one large community, obviously. Um, I think the actuality is it's, it's, it's diverse, but it does have, an for a small town, an unusually strong community sense. Yeah. I have been at meetings where there's been some protest. Mm. Building that road, mm. moving of 
post office to the gateways, yeah. Safeways. Yeah. Safeways uh, itself, um, Ring Road, um, the, the, the uh, building on the edge of the River Dart, etc., etc. Gone to those meetings in the Civic Hall. They have been packed, standing room only. They've had the, we, as a town, have had the council there and uh, grilled them. Um, j j when we had, we organized a meeting with regard to the Gulf War, when, just as it was starting, and we got various speakers to act as a protest about it. It was packed in that, in that hall. In, in other words, the community sense for the community and for the international community is very, 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 very strong here. And the churches have been terrific. The Quakers, of course, are always marvellous. The Buddhists locally are marvellous. And, and there are those qualities of commitment and public concern which is marvellous here. Um, just finally, we talked earlier on about um, the sort of California man encounters and yes. things like that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Spilling the Beans book, which was written. I know, yes, I know the book. Which um, sort of yes. typified the sort of Ashburton topness triangle. Uh, triangle, Buckley Triangle has been the sort of veritable Marin County of England. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that still holds true? Um, that book was written in 84, 85. Mm. Um, I have been in Marin County every year for the past 12 years. I teach in Marin County, uh, move in the circles of alternative in Marin County. Um, I don't really um, agree with the analogy of Marin. And partly, although there's a lot of exploration going on, Mar on Marin, there's also um, a lot of um, um, privilege. It's extremely affluent and people who are economically successful take on and explore alternative things. The, 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 I think Marin has to learn from Totnes. Yeah. And I say that not out of any um, particular bias, because I love Marin County. Yeah. But I think what we're offering here is a way of life which is viable in, and sustainable. Mm. Marin lifestyle isn't sustainable. Mm. It's a very privileged social economic climate there. Here, we're saying we can live with some modesty. Mm. And that instead of thinking, oh, what is better in life is to have a bigger house, you know, a bigger garden, yeah. or etc. Say, look, in my case, I'm very lucky. I have a little terraced house, a couple of bedrooms upstairs, and a couple of rooms downstairs, and a, a garden not much bigger than my 13 by 12 foot living room. Uh, and, and it's fine and wonderful. Mm. And it's fine and wonderful because there are other things in life than having more. Mm. And I think Marin hasn't learned that. Mm. It is, it's, not in that it's not in the same league for uh, uh, practical, down-to-earth mm. living style. Is there a common structure sort of to, the, to the people who characterise the, the alternative scene in Totnes? Are they... I mean, one woman said that the alternative movement is undoubtedly middle class, and thought that she, she was quite sceptical about the... Uh, she called it a movement. She, she, she was quite sceptical about the people, and she said she thought it was very much to do with the educated middle classes, people from teaching nursing professions. Um, it's a very... Uh, I, I would beg to disagree. Mm. I would beg to disagree is that I think it's unusually classless. Um, would she refer to um, New Age travellers living down on the steamer quay as being middle class? Um, they are decidedly part of an alternative movement, regardless of the 
condemnation of the media and the middle classes and this horrendous syndrome in this country of um, you know not in my backyard you know Libya system um, at the other end of we might say of the social scale would have to be Maurice Ash who you plan to see who is uh, the owner of a 650-acre estate and a huge Palladian house. He is definitely part of a movement towards social, spiritual, economic change. So to actually want to typify them into class A or B or whatever um, simply doesn't reflect the sheer diversity. And I think many of us, including myself, um, object thoroughly to being put into a middle-class category. And in fact, my upbringing is um, council house, working class, mm. left school at the age of 15 mm. and um, n never moved in those circles in my life. And that's perhaps why it works so well in Totnes because there are now obvious social class divides. Exactly. You can't, you can't, it just is, it, it, it just doesn't f fit yeah. and, uh, and, and there's no predominance of any group. That, that, that's, that's its uh, strength. And if one was to make a criticism in the, in the, what one might say is that um, um, it's mostly white skin. Yes. But one can't blame us for that. No. Um, it's, uh, and I do think it's important to have a, an international sense. And there are very few people um, with non-white skin. There's plenty of, it's the international, Americans, Canadians, New Zealanders, European communities, etc. Some of our communities have a, as many foreigners yeah. in it as, as, as uh, English people, but, uh, but it's classless. Yeah. Um, do you think that the, um, there's, from, from my interviews, I've um, got a lot of antagonism towards the New Age travellers. Yeah. And, and that questionnaire that I've put out. Um, in question? A questionnaire. I've actually yes, yes. Mm, um, I've found that people wish to distinguish between alternative and New Age movement and the old New Age travellers. Do you think mm. that's a fair distinction? Because people have said to me that they've thought that the, the New Age travellers, one more, well, the, same, the same woman I talked to, said that they were going, they were the fly in the ointment of the alternative scene, oh. that they would tar the alternative scene because people didn't see them as related, that they saw New Age travellers and then this sort of more acceptable alternative scene. Um, I, 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 again, you know, we, all of us, and the, and the good woman that spoke is entitled to her, her, to her views. Um, I am an ardent supporter of travellers mm. and I'm on, on two or three different reasons and I've also of course mm. have met and talked with plenty of them. The reason that I um, am a supporter of them is um, firstly I think the right to their lifestyle, yeah. caravan lifestyle on the road is their right. Mm. It's not for us to can judge or condemn. Mm. It's their right to, in terms of uh, how they choose to live and the way they choose to educate their children. I think we have a duty to, um, in, to ensure that they feel comfortable and included. Mm. I think I have no wish to protect the alternative movement from the New Age mm. travellers. Um, of course, I feel sorry uh, that at times New Age travellers have got into violent confrontation with the police. Mm. I feel sorry at times for uh, some of the New Age travellers who have taken and adopted a very aggressive standpoint towards mm. authority. Mm. Um, I think that tends to jeopardise their own case a great deal. Um, I make a laugh 
I literally laugh when I run by the, the, where the New Age Travellers are, Steamers Quay, and see that the council have put up a poster there in, uh, which says that the uh, New Age Travellers, they're parked there, are stopping um, development and from people getting jobs. You know, if, if damn it, if, the, if South Ham's District Council can't provide jobs because of a handful of caravans, mm. it's a pathetic comment in mm. South Ham District Council. So, um, I think what is happening is that there has to be a pecking order in society mm. um, by the establishment. And the establishment have chosen New Age Travellers. The fact that they get mentioned at Tory party conferences and get a huge cheer from the Tory party faithful, um, the, um, as one Tory MP says, we had said to me, but said Christopher, this is another Parliament, said Christopher, we are Tory MPs. We have to look after our blue rinse ladies, you know. <laughs> and uh, I am very keen f and to ensure that we take care mm. of our uh, uh, concern for our travellers. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to get marginalised. And, and I want the New Age movement or the alternative movement to solidly back them up. Very, very, very important. I, w I, w I will have nothing to do with any kind of wedge to protect the alternative movement. If it doesn't look after and care for our brothers and sisters or our travellers, then I will absolutely disassociate myself from the alternative movement. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a lot. All right, then. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thank you for yeah. your time. Uh, and we begin to believe about ourselves that we're only good and we're only true and we're only worthwhile if we succeed in getting what we want. And I think when we look at that and question that and have doubt about the desire, suffering and living in that way, I think it's a, an incredibly radical message. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.